Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders. Welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. For today's episode, we're looking at the idea of a bottom-up economy with author, farmer, and doer, Anthony Flacavino from Southwest Virginia. As we think of rebuilding a diversified economy throughout the coal fields, Flacavino's work offers one possible roadmap. He says, quote, thousands of people are building better economies and communities right where they live, but local action alone simply is not enough. To bring these alternatives to scale, we need a mass movement for an economy that serves people, builds broadly based prosperity, preserves community, and restores rather than degrades the ecosystem, end quote. Anthony Flacavino is the author of two books, Healthy Food Systems, A Toolkit for Building Value Chains, and Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change, which is his latest work. He has published articles on sustainability and rural development in the Washington Post, Huffington Post, and Solutions Journal. Flacavino has 30 years of on-the-ground experience in designing, testing, and managing many out-of-the-box enterprises, from food and farming to sustainable development in both urban and rural settings. He ran as the Democratic nominee for Virginia's 9th District, in the 2012 U.S. Congressional election. And for more than 20 years, he has had a small-scale commercial organic farm. Michael Schumann, author of Local Dollars, Local Cents, says this, quote, The field of local economy has some great practitioners, great thinkers, and great writers, but rarely can one find all those skills in one person. Anthony Flacavino is that one-in-a-million talent. We should thank the locavore gods that he is on our side. End quote. And now, we'll join Anthony Flacavino for his book talk, held this fall at the University of Virginia Wise Campus. Appreciate it. I'm really grateful to be here. It's a great crowd. You know, it's kind of a privilege to be able to speak to people. But by the same token, I think, I, obviously, I, I want you to listen to what I say, but I also, you need to take it with a grain of salt. So you need to know who I am, where I'm coming from. I have a farm. We've been farming for 23 years, an old tobacco farm. That hat is a hat that kind of colors everything I do, whether it's related directly to farming or not. Also started a number of local enterprises, including the Appalachian Harvest Food Hub that has a packing house in Duffield, Virginia. That's still going strong after many years. And so I kind of have that small business owner Going back a little bit further, when I was working with the diocese, I was very involved during the Pitts and Coal strike, working with the miners and trying to help their strike, which turned out relatively well. And that's a very important legacy I carry. And then lately, my book. So that's who I am. Take it or leave it. You can like it or not like it. I like to put that out there. I also like to say that consider who I am, but as a, a letter to the editor, in the Bristol Herald Courier put it, at the end of a long rant of a letter, the writer said, it's just my opinion, but it is the word of God. 
so I think that's basically how you should see these next 30 minutes. <laughs> so this book of mine follows a trajectory, but it begins with kind of, as, as the chapter's title, what's wrong with what we've done? Sort of a, a short and sweet critical analysis of the way we go about doing an economy now. It's sort of a national level look. My reason for writing the book was partly my frustration with being in the field for 30 years, working on alternatives in farming and forest products in economic development, the last 10 years working all around the country on that stuff, but not seeing much in the way of changes in the way we think and make policy. So I'm going to read this little snippet from the introduction, because the book is fundamentally not about farming, although there's a lot of farming examples, but it's really an economics book. Most of all, I hope you all take this away. The economy is really a mix of many economies, beginning with what we do at home and in our communities. It's not inscrutable, something that can't be examined or understood, nor immutable, something that can't be changed unless we let it be so. At its most basic level, the economy is simply the system we adopt to produce and distribute what people need to have a decent life. How we do that impacts not only our own prosperity, but also the options and problems that future generations will face. We can do a lot where we live, but local action alone will not overcome the biggest and most important problems we face, including growing poverty, extreme concentrations of wealth and power, obscene levels of incarceration, substantially based on race, and rapidly accelerating climate change, to name a few. At the same time, we need a mass movement demanding such change that also needs to be grounded in this vision and reality of the bottom-up living economy. As Naomi Klein puts it, quote, many of us are getting a lot better at standing up to those who would cynically exploit crises to ransack the public sphere. And yet, these protests have also shown that saying no is not enough. If opposition movements are to do more than burn bright and then burn out, they will need a comprehensive vision for what should emerge in the place of our failing system." End of quotes. The communities and initiatives highlighted in this book can contribute to that vision of what should emerge, along with ideas for elements of a reinvigorated and truly public politics. They can help spawn and support a mass movement that's as excited about what could be as it is angry about what is. Over almost a century, the amount of money going to farmers barely nudged up, which is the single biggest reason why we lost the vast majority of our farming population. But also, that there's a fair number of jobs, not terribly well-paying, but it's processing, packaging, aggregation, distribution, retailing, wholesaling, advertising, so it's jobs but also it represents, as Wendell calls it, estrangement. There's distance between us as consumers and farmers. When you have that estrangement, when people are disconnected from their food, there's consequences. Milk's a great example of the consequence of low price. Milk, in 1970, was netting farmers, dairymen, $11 for 100 pounds of milk. By 2015, those same farmers were getting $13.50, $11.1970, $13.50 in 2015, 45 years later, even though 
diesel fuel, fertilizer, everything else had gone up between 200 and 600%. That's a problem. So what happens when you do that? Well, the people growing the grain for the farmers, they push the limits. They plant on erodible land. They plant too close to riparian zones. You get massive amounts of runoff, topsoil loss, decline in fertility, and pollution of local streams all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. When people are disconnected from their food, we enable these things to happen, CAFOs, as they're usually called, confined animal feeding operations, because most of us, when we buy chicken breasts on sale at 99 cents a pound at the store or stop by and get a Hardy's biscuit, are disconnected enough that the horrors of this way of raising livestock are not in our consciousness. Lucas Benitez, I had the great privilege of meeting him about 10 years ago. He's led a coalition of farm workers in Florida, in the center of where most of our tomatoes are raised. His campaign, which is now starting to have some success, was spawned by the fact that tomato workers were getting paid one cent per pound of tomatoes they picked. That means, when you do the math, that you get 20 bucks for every ton of tomatoes you pick. Now, at our biggest on our farm, when we had maybe 1,000 or 1,500 tomato plants, we might pick 2,000 pounds of tomatoes over the course of a week. These people are having to pick two and three tons per day to make 50 or 60 bucks. Utterly extraordinary. And all of that estrangement also creates the sort of illusion of cheap food, which in many respects it is, as you'll see, which is also allows us to supersize many of our things, from drinks to burgers. I'm old enough to remember when McDonald's introduced the quarter pounder when we thought it was huge. And now a quarter pounder is marketed as a little burger. So we have supersized everything. And what are the consequences of that? More of these, what the economists would call externalities. How much we spend on food as a part of our household income, what we spend on medicine, and doctors, and insurance. Back when I was a wee lad, we spent really very little on health care and doctors, and quite a bit of our income on food. Those lines crossed about 25 years ago. Now we spend dramatically more of our income on health care and hospitalization. So that's kind of a quick snippet of sort of framing the food system. More broadly, the same trends hold in the economic system as a whole. Worker productivity. Worker productivity is a very often used measurement by economists and business people, and it is, just as it says, a measurement of how much a given worker produces on average in the course of a, an hour or a day. Worker productivity has climbed steadily. Through more education, more skills, and particularly more technology, workers produce more per hour every generation. What used to be the case was that as worker productivity increased, so did wages. Wages tracked pretty close to worker productivity. You can see starting in the mid-70s, that relationship was severed so that now, basically, we can be as productive as we want, but still medium household and hourly wages flat. That's a lot of stuff being produced by workers, and they're not getting it in the form of wages. So where is that going? Well, it's going to the top 1%, as we all now know. 93% of the income in the first term of President Obama went to the top 1%. The Walton heirs, same amount of wealth as 100 million Americans, and perhaps most obscene of all, 62 people own the equivalent wealth of 3.6 billion people worldwide. 62 individuals have the same aggregate wealth as half of humanity. Utterly extraordinary. We know it in our own community, before Obama, before the war on coal and EPA, 
we know that what was happening here was that coal production, now this coal production curve has taken a nosedive in the last decade, but through the early part of this century, with some dips and falls, basically we continued to produce goodly amounts of coal, but jobs went down and down and down. So we can talk about the unfairness, the unjust, the immorality, if you see it that way, of this extreme concentration of wealth, but we also know that when we put all our eggs in one or two baskets, it has ill consequences for our health and our community well-being. Several people have looked at this. This study quoted by Stacy Mitchell out of Cornell looked at 200 counties in the United States and said, we're going to compare counties that we're going to classify as big business, meaning the majority of the economy, the majority of the jobs are coming from one or two large employers, and we're going to compare them with what we're calling small business counties, where the majority of the jobs are coming from dozens or scores or perhaps hundreds of small businesses, and they separated them. And what they found across the board, east, west, Appalachia, was that with the big business counties, this economic dependence on a few large businesses, there was not only more inequality, but much worse housing, much worse health, poor birth weight, higher disability, higher crime, higher incarceration. So we kind of are getting the picture that, in fact, this is not good for our community. There is not a trickle-down that's happening. So if, if the Bill Gates of the world were getting so rich, but it was trickling down to build stronger communities, it would be a different story. It simply is not, and we know it. There's another consequence of this extreme wealth, and it's what some people call financialization. Financialization is the term people are using to represent when an economy becomes excessively dependent on basically Wall Street or businesses that make their money by trading in money, including real estate. What we know is that the financial sectors, basically the banking industry, the insurance industry, the financial services sector, its share of our total gross domestic product has tripled between 1950 and present time. And also from people who've looked at it, when you have so much money being earned by trading money and derivatives of money, you have a negative relationship with other forms of investment. In other words, if there's too much focus on big banks, Wall Street money, we neglect other things. What do we neglect? Well, we neglect ecological capital. In our neck of the woods, for many, many years, including some still at present, although forced management practices have improved, it was in the form of overusing our capital and then simultaneously undervaluing it. If you're gonna, at least if you're gonna log the hell out of a forest, you might as well get some economic value, but typically we sent the majority of that high quality wood out of the area for the value. Not only have we neglected to invest in our ecological capital, we've neglected to invest in our most basic infrastructure, our bridges, tunnels, roads, etc. To the point that the American Society of Civil Engineers, their 2013 estimate said, it'll take $3.6 trillion to bring our infrastructure up to a grade B, not a grade A, and not talking about adding high-speed rail or other forms of infrastructure, simply what we got to fix it relatively well, $3.6 trillion. So there's a lot of serious consequences from neglecting this. And to top it all off, a whole lot of people are not making it anymore. We have a shrinking middle class. You all know all this. We know we have 50 million people in poverty, another 50 million people hovering just above poverty. But there are folks who've made it and still make it to this day. But even so, we know that since 1956, 
from annual surveys are done that Americans' own assessments of our happiness and our contentment has been in a slow but steady decline. Now, I was born in 1957, and I'm hoping there's not a direct relationship, but basically, we've been getting unhappier every year that I've been on this planet. <laughs> what is up with that? But, I mean, truly, this, when we compare our lives, even, even people who consider themselves lower middle class lives of contemporary standards with the standards of the early 50s, our lives are supersized. Bigger homes, bigger cars, more stuff, but it hasn't translated to more happiness, and in fact, in affluent enclaves, oftentimes young people are more happy and more plagued by problems than lower income people are. So that's a quick run through of what's wrong with what we got. Now we're going to talk about what the bulk of the book is about, which is these six transitions that I believe we can make that are emerging all over the country and that I do think if we do them all, we'll have a chance of actually building a really good economy and a better world. The first one is this idea of moving from consumptive dependence, I call it, that's everything from our food habits, our entertainment habits, everything else, to productive resilience. And Rhoda Halpern, who wrote a book about resilience and self-reliance, uh, focused on Appalachians in Kentucky and Ohio, this quote is from her, and she talks about it as building systems of local knowledge and practice that allow people to ex exercise control over their livelihood. That's what I mean by resilience and self-reliance. So what does that look like? So in the book, again, each of these six transitions has uh, several examples. And most of the examples I'll use here, not all of them come from the book as well. Community gardens, they're springing up all over the place. In Detroit, with all the vacant land that has resulted from their, the mass exodus of people and jobs, they now have 1,800 community gardens spawned by a handful of different community organizations. Some of them have built their own greenhouses so they can now raise their own plants, another form of self-reliance. But how do you create a set of rules that allow people to do like a community garden because of its openness? And in some places it's a real problem and in other places it isn't. But a lot of community gardens initially spring up just informally out of a nonprofit or a church group or just a civic-minded individual. What typically happens is if, if they stick around enough and grow, then they have to start grappling with rules within the garden as well as rules to protect the garden. And in some cases, it's a matter, unfortunately, of building fences. In other cases, what they found is effective is simply having the community gardens close to some other important part of the community where people come and go a lot. If it's kind of out by itself, it's more likely to be vandalized or that sort of thing. But here's another issue that's emerged, and they're dealing with it in places like Detroit and Santa Fe and other places, is that when community gardens take hold in particularly derelict neighborhoods, they tend to start revitalizing the neighborhood. They, to people, people are starting to think maybe there's some life to this community. So other things start to happen. Well, as other things happen, maybe then another business opens. And then maybe a few homes get a little bit of work done on the perimeter. So the, the property values start to go up. In New York, they had a whole section in Manhattan of very effective community gardens that have been going for several years. They helped to revitalize that particular neighborhood, so much so that Rudy Giuliani sold it off because it was public land to a developer to put in a big development. So what these communities are grappling with is how can we give community gardens some sense of security, some sense of tenure, that if their work succeeds, they won't get kicked out. It's a complicated question, but uh, it's, it's happening. In Appalachia, it's cropping up all over. This is ASD's um, connection to a program out of Berea, Kentucky called Grow Appalachia, where they teach not only gardening and make gardening tools and space available, but also cooking, canning, preservation, nutrition. 
altogether builds up alliance. Some of you all know the Community Farm Alliance in Eastern Kentucky that works throughout Eastern Kentucky and into other parts of the state. Just a couple of years ago, they partnered with several other groups, including an insurance company and a, and a health provider to start their pharmacy program that now people are actually getting uh, prescriptions written for fresh fruits and vegetables that are then redeemable at local markets. Now think about that. If you can get people eating a little better, that's going to make their medical bills over time, if they do other things right, come down a little bit. It's going to make their lives less dependent and more productive, but it's also going to contribute to community productivity and resilience because the money is staying locally instead of going to a pharmaceutical giant somewhere else. Another great example. Tool libraries. Didn't know anything about them until I started doing research for the book. There's somewhere between 55 and 60 now in the country. Closest one I'm aware of is in Greensboro, North Carolina, opened a couple of years ago. Very simple concept. It's a public library for tools. You know, an awful lot of us who are middle income at least have basements or garages full of tools that we rarely use, which is kind of wasteful in an ecological sense, and also it probably propels us to do stupid things because we just want to use our damn tools. Mm -hmm. Then there's a lot of other people who would use tools productively to fix up their house, to fix plumbing, to do gardening, but they can't afford much in the way of tools. Tool libraries kind of create a level playing field there, and you basically you get a little training on the tool, if it's a skill saw, a rototiller, you come in, brilliant idea, brilliant, often attached to the public library itself. I'm sure some of you here know Mason in Eastern Kentucky, Mountain Association for Community Economic Development. Their How Smart Kentucky program, to me, is one of the best examples of this idea of re-skilling ourselves so that we're less dependent and more resilient. They were dealing with this issue, as we have throughout Appalachia, of people living in trailers or drafty homes who are paying hundreds of dollars a month to kind of keep the house from being super cold. A lot of money going out, a lot of energy going out, a lot of emissions going out, but folks didn't have the money to fix them up. Now, there's weatherization programs that have been around for a long time, do great work, but Mason wanted to go further than weatherization and reach people working folks who didn't qualify for weatherization. They worked with the local utility, the Rural Electric Cooperative, set up a program where after an energy audit, a family would apply, they would get whatever they needed, double pane windows, a new heating system, insulation, the whole bit. It wasn't a handout, rather they would then repay that loan over time through the savings on their bill. It's called on-bill financing. It's being done in a few other places as well. So basically, if you were paying 250 bucks a month, and after the improvements, your, your utility bill went down to 100 most of that $150 per month savings went to retire your debt at no interest. So again, they're creating jobs by putting people to work. They'd save a little bit of that, about 50 bucks a month, just so their heating bill was cheaper. Not only that, now they have a, a home that's worth a lot more because it's no longer a drafty home. Really brilliant idea. In each of these transition chapters, after giving the examples, I do a little analysis and then I talk about public policy because public policy is the piece that most of us who've been kind of working in the trenches have neglected. We've sort of been so focused on trying to make Southwest Virginia or Eastern Kentucky or whatever a little bit better that we've neglected public policy. And as a result, there's a lot of bad public policy out there. So I give examples in each chapter of a few good public policies. I don't have time to go through them here, but essentially the kinds of policy that would support the transition we discuss. I'm going to mention one here. So another element of self-reliance, of overcoming dependence, is saving money, right? It's pretty basic. 
and we're all taught to save from an early age, but the fact is that an awful lot of people, not just the very poor, but an awful lot of working folks are barely getting by and it's really difficult to save. But it's also true that most of our federal policy, the incentives are set up to benefit middle income and upper income people. By this study, three-fourths of all the mortgage interest deduction, which is a tax benefit, a savings plan basically, goes to the wealthiest 20%. The bottom 60%, which is most of the middle class and certainly the working poor, get about 8% of that benefit. The ideas in this book come from these fellows, Reed Kramer and Elliot Schroer, and they talk about a universal 401k that you, if you work, you get a 401k. And if you get laid off, you keep your 401k and it resumes at your next job instead of it being dependent on the employer. It's one of a couple of ideas that are really, again, not rocket science, but very smart that would help cultivate saving, especially for people for whom it's really difficult. Second transition. So that transition towards, towards a more resilient and self-reliant households and communities is the foundational transition, both because we're in hard times and a lot of people need that, but also from an ecological point of view. We all need to learn to live within our means. Going forward, we'll have 10 or 10 and a half billion people on the planet. We're dealing with climate change. We're dealing with a lot of resource shortages. We all need to learn to live within our means. So that's the foundation. The second one is this idea of building living economies and stop thinking that it's going to trickle down because it hasn't and it ain't going to. This is what Van Jones said in his book, that the green economy, he called what I call the bottom-up economy, should not just be about reclaiming thrown-away stuff, but also thrown-away people and communities. And there's a lot of good examples of that. Push Buffalo, I've been pleased to visit a couple times on the west side of Buffalo. It's a group very much like a low-income community action agency, sort of a people-link type group. But the difference here was that they shook loose a bunch of vacant properties that the state owned that the state was not investing in, not trying to rehab, but had packaged on Wall Street and was drawing income off of vacant lots and poor people's homes, they shook that loose and started doing building. They've now created over 100 jobs and they've created these very high-skilled work crews that are comprised primarily of people who've come out of prison or been homeless or otherwise been on hard times. They're not only building homes on vacant lots, rehabbing bad homes, they're also installing geothermal systems. They're doing ecological restoration right in the heart of Buffalo. They're calling it a green development zone. Farmers markets. Farmers markets, as you know, have erupted in a lot of places. Some places they're not successful. Abingdon's has a great one. Norton's got a good farmers market. St. Paul has a good farmers market. There's several that have emerged in eastern Kentucky. But what farmers markets are is they're sort of a reclaiming of a public space where we come together across political lines and class lines to be consumers, and then farmers do the same. The Abingdon market, which is probably the biggest in the region, it's amazing the political spectrum of both vendors and buyers there. We have some of our most devoted customers are some of the hardest core lefties in Southwest Virginia, and some of them are Glenn Beck devotees. And they're all together there at the farmer's market, and because it's a living economy that is enticing them there. So farmer's markets are a great example. I tell the story of this brilliant guy, Brent Smith, started commercial fishing when he was 15 years old, fished for three decades, saw on the east and west coasts of the states, coasts of the states, he saw steadily declining fisheries. And he created, out of his own research and smarts, what he calls vertical ocean farming. It's basically 20-acre paddocks along the shoreline. It's hard to explain in a couple of minutes, in which he raises in vertical columns four species of uh, shellfish, clams, oysters, scallops, and 
and mussels, all high value, and he does them in conjunction with two species of seaweed. The seaweed cleans up the water, making, because all of those are filter organisms, making them very healthy, but the seaweed also is tremendous at sequestering carbon. Acre per acre, far more effective than forests, which are very good at pulling carbon out of the air. So this guy is producing four species of shellfish, kelp, a seaweed, that he then harvests once a year, that he then dries and grinds up and produces a high protein product for either animal feed or people, and all the while he's, he's cleaning up the local ecosystem and helping with climate change. Absolutely brilliant, just amazing. And it's now, after being on the margins for a while, he's got um, the NOAA, the National Oceanic um, Administration studying his stuff, he's got the people at Yale studying it, and he's got fishermen adopting it. It's really exciting. Our own little foray, as David mentioned, started uh, around helping f farmers, particularly tobacco farmers, do some transition. And I love this picture. John Mullins was like the second or third tobacco farmer to give organic produce a try. And this was a year or two in. John was raising like 10 or 12 acres of organic produce, doing a great job. And here he was in our packing house, proudly holding three of his tomatoes while smoking a cigarette. And I figured this is Appalachian agriculture in, in one picture. Another brilliant thing that's happening is in southern West Virginia, a group called the Coalfield Development Corporation, really smart young man named Brandon Dennison. They're doing all kinds of stuff, focused on, but not exclusively, but focused particularly on miners who've been laid off. They have three different economic sectors that they work in, but fundamentally they combine classroom training in whatever it is, in, in agriculture, in solar, and in, in this case, deconstruction and construction a rigorous classroom program of about six hours a week with about 33 hours a week of on-the-job paid, on-the-job training, and they are graduating people now doing this kind of work. In this particular case, they were taking this old abandoned sewing factory, we had a lot of them in our neck of the woods, in Huntington, and they reconditioned it, and now it is a place where some of the skills training goes on. They harvest wood from all over old buildings in Huntington and it's being repurposed now by artisans and others and on top of that they've created one part of that old building is now an art center. So again, thinking very intelligently about how do we create economies that live, that give back, right? And one last example comes from Radford, Virginia. This guy Joe Fortier took an old tire factory, cleaned it up and he's making these super energy efficient panels called SIPS panels that are twice as efficient as a well-insulated home, and they're tremendously storm-resistant. They're often the only buildings left standing if there's a terrific storm that comes through. Now think about the kind of products we could be thinking about in the coal fields that ought to have, he doesn't, he's got plenty of market for his small shop now, it's not a huge market, but think 10 to 20 years down the road, what kind of structures will we need? Homes, community centers, churches, schools, we'll need buildings that are super energy efficient and tremendously storm worthy, right? That's the world we're moving into. This kind of a business could really set things on fire in a good way. So, a little bit about this analysis. So these local living economies, they are not only cool because farmers markets are cool and these businesses are cool, but they actually create a lot more jobs. By Stacey's, Stacey Mitchell's estimate, you get about 50 people for every $10 million in sales from independent retailers compared to 23 and 21 for Amazon and Big Bucks. So they create a lot more jobs per unit of purchase. Remember that when you want to go to Amazon. You're listening to Mountain Talk Monday with Anthony Flacavino's Book Talk. 
at UVA Wise on his newest book, Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change, published by the University of Kentucky Press. We'll be right back after this short break. Donald Trump campaigned with tough talk on trade. How will his trade policies as president affect the Ohio Valley's economy? Becca Schimmel spoke with business leaders and economists on both sides of the trade debate and found them skeptical about Trump's ability to make big changes. When I spoke to Bud Lane in August, he was excited and hopeful for another Clinton to take office. Lane's the CEO of the conveyor belt manufacturing facility Spantec, and he was eager to see more trade with Asia. Since Election Day, he's changed his tune. I think business is going to really respond to the Trump administration in a big, big way. It's, it's going to give uh, everybody in the business community a positive feeling about the future of business in this country. Uh, instead of a situation where we, we all feel somewhat preyed upon by, you know, uh, uh, Democratic administrations that are not necessarily pro-business. While Lane still favors free trade, he likes Trump's stance on lowering taxes. 30 miles away at Trace Diecast, where parts are made for transmissions that will go to Ford and GM plants, President Chris Guthrie is no fan of free trade. But he doubts Trump can change something so ingrained in American business. It's going to be hard to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, it's every, all the companies have their supply chains. Uh, all the countries' economies depend upon each other. And trying to unravel that is going to be very, we feel very difficult. These business owners aren't the only ones left uncertain about what Trump's trade stance will mean for the Ohio Valley region. Two economists with differing views on trade also say it's hard to tell how Trump's tough stance with China and skeptical view of trade agreements might play out. The best I, I think I'm hoping for at this point with respect to this administration coming up in trade is that they don't mess too much stuff up. That's Western Kentucky University economist Brian Strau, a free trade supporter. He says Trump appears to have helped derail one trade deal already, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. He says that deal with 11 countries could have been a big job generator in Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. Particularly in the exportation of uh, automobiles, cars, uh, heavy machinery, electronics. These are the big things that this region is exporting to Asia. So we could have seen an increase in jobs in those particular areas. Strau was also concerned about Trump's tendency to directly intervene in business decisions. He has already pressured aircraft maker Boeing, air conditioning maker's carrier, and the Ford Motor Company over a proposed change at its Louisville plant. I don't want to live in a country where basically one person can just tell people what to do. Kentucky Center for Economic Policy economist Jason Bailey thinks a whole new approach to trade is long overdue. Uh, what we've had in the past uh, too often is a process controlled by powerful corporate interests and that's what needs to end. Bailey says he'd like to see action to reduce the country's trade imbalance with China and to confront China about its manipulation of currency, a practice that makes goods artificially cheaper and encourages manufacturers to move operations there. And in Kentucky, for example, you know, by one estimate, uh, the increased trade imbalance with China has led to the loss of 41,000 Kentucky jobs, and that's jobs in Industries like computer part manufacturing, apparel manufacturing. Spantex Bud Lane doubts any action Trump takes will significantly hinder trade between China and America. Everybody needs everybody in this scenario. I mean, for the, the concept that we're not going to sell to China and we're not going to buy from China, 
that train left a long time ago. That, that's, that's out, you can forget that. Regardless of where business owners fall in the free trade discussion, they'll have to wait and see what Trump's trade policies will be. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Becca Schimmel in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. Brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. Third transition is this idea about building what Bill McKibben calls durable wealth. And I love this quote from Woody Tash, who started Slow Money. He says, we need to start thinking about money as irrigation for the field of our intentions. In other words, where our money is, whether we're modest income or rich, it influences the world that we have. When we think about wealth, when we think about assets, we oftentimes this comes to people's mind. You know, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime unless he doesn't have a net, a boat, or access to the water. That's the problem with that analysis. And we're so preoccupied with the education piece, which is very important. I'm in a place of higher learning, I know that. But the education alone, if we don't address capital, and access to capital doesn't do the trick. We have to have enabling capital. And we know, too, from studies that even, that, that this education thing, which is very, very important again, but that even Kids who are doing very well in school, if they're from a poorer family, they're much less likely to go to college, graduate from college, and get employment for a lot of different reasons. So education is critical, but it's only one piece. So how do we build local capital? Well, this is Martin Miles Barn back in 1996 or 97 when we had started taking his old tobacco barn and converting it into a packing house that became the hub for about 50 or 60 farmers selling to supermarkets and college and universities. Couldn't be simpler, couldn't be more ubiquitous, but instead of trying to give money to 50 or 60 farmers to build their own packing houses with refrigeration and grading lines, we built one. It was a community asset that helped farmers from multiple counties. Another example, again, from Huntington is the wild ramp. We've got an example in Jonesboro, Tennessee, called Boone Street Market, but it's this emergence of these small community-owned retail, usually in food deserts, where there's no big grocery, people can't get good food, they become places where local farmers can sell their products and local people can come together. A huge example of that is in New Mexico. This is an amazing organization, a cooperative called La Montanita, started out a monthly buying club in somebody's basement. You remember that old thing, cutting the cheese and divvying up the grain? They grew to now have 16,000 members, six retail storefronts, and their own aggregation center, and they buy from over 400 farmers in New Mexico. Tremendous source of community wealth and capital. So too is this idea of solar gardens that are springing up around the country. This organization, Clean Energy Collective, they deal with the fact that many people don't have homes or buildings that are situated right for solar panels, and many people are renters, and they, they can't put a solar panel on a home they're renting. Here, people go in together, buy the panels they need for the whole neighborhood or community. They site them in the best place. They get a discount because they're buying in bulk and installing in bulk, and then they become, again, more independent from an energy point of view. One more example of this comes from New Hampshire, a situation, again, we can relate to this here in rural New Hampshire. There was a, what we call a trailer park. There was a group of families, it was a few dozen. Uh, some of them owned their trailers, some didn't, but none of them owned the land that was on, pretty typical. 
The guy who owned the land had an offer from a developer. He told him they had X amount of weeks to get out. Reminds me of Trammell. And instead, somebody hooked them up with the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund who designed a loan so that they got the money together to buy the land underneath their feet with a little extra working capital. So they also fixed up their trailers, put on porches, and now they have actually a nice neighborhood that anybody would consider worth something. Whereas before, they and their trailers were considered to be discarded. Amazing. And so much this was so successful that the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund now has a whole loan portfolio focused on manufactured home parks because they're trying to build local wealth. Some of the policies relate to things like adaptive reuse. Uh, this woman, Kimber Lanning of Phoenix, has kind of written the book on this, but uh, where oftentimes our old buildings, there's so many hurdles to fix them up and reuse them, and if we can streamline some of those policies, we can really improve things. But I'll, let me let it stop there. The fourth transition, so let's assume for a minute that people are becoming more self-reliant and more resilient. Let's think also that these bottom-up economies are beginning to work, and between co-ops and community capital, we're starting to build some wealth. The problem we're facing now is it's still all too small. We're just all too tiny. To quote, and excuse me if I offend anybody, but to quote a New York friend of mine who characterized my work this way 20 years ago, I said, how come it doesn't get any attention? That seems like we're doing good stuff. How come we can't get any big funding? And he said, you want to know why? Because you're a that, is what he said. <laughs> so how do we scale that up? One example is Organic Valley. Some of you might have bought some of their milk or their cheese or their butter. This is amazing to me because Organic Valley started out as a ragtag group of growers like us, mostly produce people. They've grown into a $1 billion company. That's pretty good-sized business. They buy from thousands of farmers all over the country. But here's the deal. They're still a farmer-owned co-op, and they do all of their buying in regional pools. So if you're a dairyman in the Northeast, you don't send your milk to the headquarters of Wisconsin. It goes into a pool in the Northeast. It's made into cheese and butter in the Northeast or put into milk bottles in the Northeast. And so they've maintained a system where they've scaled up their impact, but they still have their roots and their connections and their returns to local and regional communities. Just absolutely brilliant. Similar example comes from Washington, D.C. A woman named Anya Schoolman started an effort to just get a few solar panels in one neighborhood in Washington it generated some excitement so that they created D.C. solar neighborhoods, D.C. United solar neighborhoods, D.C. Sun, and before long, every neighborhood in this part of D.C. had solar panels. Over 100 homes did it in a matter of about six years. Now she's gone national with that program. That's the fourth transition about scaling up, and there's a lot more in the book. The fifth one is about the public debate. We have consolidated media so dramatically, so that in 1980, roughly 50 companies owned 90% of the media. Now six do. And we have this announcement, right, of AT&T wanting to buy Time Warner. That would get us down to five, owning 90% of the media. That's incredibly, incredibly important to understand, because at this point, groups like Apple Shop, and there's not many that are really like Apple Shop, but community media of one sort or another, whether they're doing radio, TV, documentary, or whatever, is more important than ever. Partly because of the local work, but also partly because that work led to the, what is it called, Mimi? It's the Community Radio Act, or something like that, that is the low power FM, that created a whole new set of licenses for independent, nonprofit, or civic-owned media that is, again, creating a little alternative around the corporate media. Absolutely critical. 
It's not just about media, it's also about community theater. Speak briefly about this brilliant, brilliant group in Harlan, Kentucky called Higher Ground. Also talk about a similar group in a tiny uh, rural community in Georgia called Colquitt, Georgia. But what, what they do at Swamp Gravy Theater in Colquitt and what they're doing in Harlan through Higher Ground is they're taking the stories of the community, the real stories, not the sanitized ones, not the tourist versions, and they're grappling with their issues, whether it's drug epidemics, whether it's the coal versus environmentalists, whatever it is, and they're turning them into opportunities for civic engagement, civic pride, for people to learn skills in writing and acting. Again, just another example of revitalizing the debate itself. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, they started this art prize just six years ago. Now they have art coming in from Michigan, but from all over the world. But the cool thing about this is it's not all going in galleries. Some of it is. Most of it, for two weeks, is in local businesses. It's in the dentist's office, in the doctor's shop, in the realtors. And I mean, it's all over. So the art is embedded throughout the community, and then that sends people out into the community talking about it. And then this whole idea of reclaiming civic spaces, which they've done here in Maine, in, in Portland, Maine, a long, interesting story, but they basically had a a community center that was going to be sold off for an expensive hotel and a high-rise development. The community fought back, started bringing chairs and tables and games and even TVs and sort of basically became occupiers of the square and eventually got the town council to vote against the development and to go so far as to say that any public-owned space in Portland before it could be sold to a private developer, it would have to be approved by seven of the eight council members. So they reclaimed a civic space. All of that is utterly critical to reclaiming our debate. A lot of people, and especially young people, will say, I mean, what difference does it make? My vote doesn't matter. What I'm concerned about doesn't matter. And for years, I've said to people, yes, it does. Yes, it does. And then I read this study, which is in the book, where they looked at 1,800 different public policy issues in the United States over the, span, in, in, over the span of several years. And what they found out was that the priorities and preferences of average people made no independent influence on the policies adopted, unless our views happen to coincide with either the very wealthy or big interests, which occasionally they do. They don't matter. So when people say to you, it doesn't matter what I think or what I do, at one level, they're right. That's the god-awful truth. They're right. You're right when you think it doesn't matter. But we must change that. That's the bit. It's only relatively recently that this is true. This is not a long-term phenomenon, right? So some things that are happening, two quick examples, participatory budgeting. Anybody here ever heard of that? It's, a, it's an effort at more active democracy, not just about electoral politics. Started in Brazil, it's now in about 50 independent localities in the US from Chicago to New York to relatively small towns. But basically, the governing authority, whether it's the Wise County Board of Supervisors or whether it's a borough in New York, gives the citizens a portion of their general budget and says, you come up with a process, you decide, and you choose. Not you recommend, you choose. So this has now emerged. Now, the, the trick, of course, is that they're given them very, very small pieces of the pie, right? That's the case. But in New York, that's like over a million bucks per individual area. In a town like Vallejo, California, it's been about a quarter to a half million dollars a year. Imagine in Wise County, if you had 100,000 bucks to work with that the citizens could actually deliberate about, argue about, and come up with a priority of ideas of what to do with that money. It's happening, it's growing, it's a really interesting example. The last one I'll mention, and then I'll shut up, is a group that a fellow named Reese Shearer started in Washington County 
we had been on a pretty good trajectory for a while in Abingdon and Washington County. It seemed like some of these bottom-up economy ideas were happening, and then through a couple of elections, things changed, and it seemed like everything the citizens wanted, or at least the bulk of the citizens, was being voted 6-0 against in the uh, Board of Supervisors. So when Washington Independent Neighbors was started uh, right before the last election cycle in 2015, uh, mobilized as a nonpartisan group, but with very clear values about preserving our space, our values, our agricultural heritage, about favoring local business over big exported, imported businesses, etc. And with that platform went to all parts of the community. The good news is, even though our county government is still not what I would consider responsive, but the good news is that all three of the candidates that win endorsed won. While these are very, very small victories in very small places, they're signs that democracy is not totally dead as yet. The thing is that more than ever before, there's something approaching a consensus that we've got to do things pretty differently. Maybe fundamentally differently, but let's say pretty differently. Compared to even when I was running for Congress four years ago, the breadth of people, the political persuasion of people were sort of saying, okay, maybe it ain't coming back even if coal does come back in some form or fashion, maybe we still have to be thinking about economic diversity, maybe we still have to think about repairing the landscape. That's part of the hope, is there is a much broader recognition coming out. You see it in SOAR for all of its flaws in Kentucky. Uh, you see it with the work that the West Virginia Community Development Hub is doing. So I think there's more of a recognition that we need to do things differently. There's also been much more experimentation. So compared to the last time the coal industry took a huge nosedive, some things have happened that give us some guidance, like the tobacco transition, right? I mean, that's only 10 years ago that the tobacco program ended, and a lot of interesting things have happened to create a lot of good livelihood opportunities for farmers. The Coalfield Development Corporation, many things. You've got more recognition that we got to do things different. You've got a lot more experiments that have grown into something fairly successful that we can learn from, if not adapt. There's traditional business incubators, they're typically a space where businesses can actually set up shop for a below market rent and then share certain things communally that they don't have to get like copy machines or now it's IT, you know, what they might be on a common server, they might get some business training. That's like one form. Some of them, like Mountain BizWorks, are more focused on the entrepreneurial training, like how do you market your business, how do you do a business plan, and the financing. Mountain BizWorks is an example, People Incorporated has pieces of what it does that are that. And then there's like a third more recent thing, and I feature a couple of them in the book, known as accelerators. And accelerators sometimes have a space, the one in New Orleans, which is called Propeller, has a space like a business incubator. But rather than seeing themselves as a space where two dozen businesses can get 30% off their rent and shared IT, they're actually deliberately structured to be sort of more like a ferment, like collegial thing, so that there's regular both formal and informal exchange of ideas. They're more values driven. So like all the businesses that go through Propeller are driven towards rebuilding Louisiana and New Orleans after Katrina. So there's businesses in housing, there's businesses in flood remediation, there's businesses in local food, all that. So these accelerators tend to combine a little bit of financing, a little bit of space, but also this sense of creating an economic engine that will be more than just random businesses getting cheap rent. Uh, there's one in Appalachia that, that spans Kentucky and, and Western North Carolina, which is called Accelerate Appalachia. Sarah Day Evans started that, and their focus is on what she calls nature-based businesses, plants and natural 
uh, nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals and food businesses and other outdoor businesses. Again, that's another reason to be a tad more hopeful. That's why my hope is 10% and not 4%, is because we have not only some good ideas for businesses that would work, but we have more mechanisms that we know can be effective to support emerging businesses. And we've got a lot more money available. Between the federal money from the power grants, the shift in ARC's thinking over the last 20 years, EPA money, and private money through things like the Appalachian Community Funders Network. So I think that we have more chance to do things better and build a healthy economy from the bottom up. But by the same token, it's really tough to do in the coal fields, specifically for a lot of reasons. So it won't be easy, and it won't, uh, you know, it just it won't transform the region in in a decade or anything like that. Maybe a decade from now, we'll be at the point where we are with the tobacco transition at sort of the beginning of having a sense of clear vision and building block foundation that we can implement over 20 more years. One of the great ironies of a lot of the, of the worker retraining that's happening now in the workforce preparation is that it's going into robotics. And robotics is promising to put tens of millions more people out of work just within the next generation. The study that I read um, came out of England. They looked at it, and they looked at all the different job classifications, and they said that basically we think of robotics as replacing menial jobs. Uh -uh. In 2012, the London Symphony Orchestra premiered a work, a symphonic work, a full symphonic work, to a full house that was created entirely by artificial intelligence. No human input whatsoever. It was, it was software programs. And it got great reviews. So the idea that one segment of the working population has to worry about this stuff that people from the thinking class or the well-educated don't is probably not true at all. And so all the more reason to build self-reliant communities where we can live with a little less income because we're doing more for ourselves, all the more reason to create these local living economies because if we think that Google and Microsoft are going to save us, they're not going to. They're going to go down that technological path. They're going to put cab drivers out of work with Uber, the whole bit. It's a new world, and it's exciting if you're in the right spot, but it's going to leave an awful lot of people behind. This is where the debate comes in. We have so redefined ourselves as individuals responsible for our own well-being, and that those who aren't being well have failed, that the sense of public investment is held back by the, the lack of a sense of commonality. We lack that sense of commonality. All those elements, from community theater to reclaiming public spaces to farmers markets, help us to regain some sense, to move beyond the horrifically polarized dialogue, but also to have a sense of common well-being. I think that's one piece. The other interesting thing is that the research on all these diverse local economies, not only do you have better housing, better health outcomes, all that stuff I showed you. You also have higher levels of civic engagement. When you're in communities with high levels of independent businesses, you have more people joining civic organizations, you have more giving to local philanthropies, and you have higher rates of voting. So something about this combination of a locally-based living economy with the civic tools and the media and theater tools together is accomplishing both an economic outcome but also a very important public civic outcome. And I want to say that as we move forward thinking about the green economy and renewable energy and the post-coal transition and all those things that many of us talk about, we've got to figure out how to do it so it's not once again leaving out rural communities and working folks, because that's what usually happens, and we can't make that mistake.
That's it for this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I've been your host, Kelly Haywood. Learn more about Anthony Flacavino's bottom-up approach to economics at www.bottomupeconomy.org, where you can view any of his Take 5 with Tony videos. Listen to this episode again and find relevant links at www.wmmt.org or download the episode as a podcast. And from all of us here at WMMT, as always, thanks for listening. Mountain Talk strives to provide an opportunity for everyone in our diverse audience to speak out about issues of importance to us all. We welcome your calls and suggestions for upcoming shows. To discuss a topic for a future Mountain Talk or to be a guest host yourself, please contact WMMT. Phone 606-633-0108 or you can write us at 91 Madison Avenue, Whitesburg, Kentucky 41858 or email us at WMMTFM at appleshop.org and appleshop is spelled a p p a l s h o p thank you